0: Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, April 27th, we're studying Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. St. Paul is bringing his preaching of the law to a climax. All are unrighteous. All have broken the law. All are accountable to God. All have no works of their own to offer Him for justification; all must stand silent before His righteous judgment. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today. We have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. Pastor Johnson serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, welcome back to Sharper Iron.
1: Thanks. Good to be here.
0: As we get started this morning, Pastor Johnson, we're at a pretty key text here in the Book of Romans. Paul is. He's been building this argument to a climax, and he's going to hit that climax today. Help us with the lead-in. Where does this text fit into the book of Romans?
1: Right. You did a nice job of summarizing its beginning, so let me just go ahead and um, amplify all that a little bit. Uh, Maybe one way to to unwrap this is think about how you would hear this, um, maybe if you were reading it for the first time, especially if you're like, you're a Jewish Christian in the congregation at Rome. So you know, after Paul gets through his introduction and whatnot, and uh, he he goes into um, he really he trains his target on the godless men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. You know, and it's really easy in that first chapter to say, "Oh yeah, Paul, you go after all those bad guys." And um, you know, of course, he says that you know these godless men, which we're understanding as as the Gentiles. Um, you know that that they are responsible for their wickedness because um, even though they may not have the Bible, they at least have a natural knowledge of God. You know his uh, his immutable characteristics have been known from before the foundation of the world, and so they've broken the law. They are you know they're rightly punished and um, and they're guilty but then paul turns on his audience and kind of trains his guns on the implied reader which i think is presumably the the jews and um and if they agreed with the judgment in the first part now they're going to agree with the judgment in the second part as well because you know they're just as responsible i mean after all <laughs> uh yes the gentiles didn't didn't obey god's law but they didn't even have the uh, the Old Testament, right? But the Jews, they've got even less excuse, right? Because they have the Torah, they have the Mosaic law. And so, so if the Gentiles are accused on the law, how much more then are the Jews also? But then, I mean, you know, Paul, of course, is he's being fair here because the whole point is that, well, all the world is divided into Jew and Gentile. And so he brings them both together in chapter 3, and, um, and in, we're we're all unified in this most strange way under our shared unrighteousness, that and even though the Jews were entrusted with the Word of God, it didn't lead to their righteousness, and the natural knowledge of God didn't lead to righteousness. We're all equally condemned under the law. Hmm. And so you're right. This is all building to this climax where he's going to—Paul uh, is going to give us this, like, you know, machine gun, rapid fire quoting of the scriptures and basically affirming everything that he said, like, Hey, listen, you're all terrible. And here's why you're all unrighteous under the law. So, um, pastor Apple, I think you were going to jump in there with something.
0: No, I just, I thought you were about to take a pause. And so I was going to jump in with, with reading the text. No, that's a great, that's a great introduction. So, so, and yeah, he's, he's, I like the way that you set that up. He he kind of he sets up, particularly the Jewish Christian there in chapter one. He uses that word them over and over again them or they. They did mm-hmm. this. It, this is true of them. And then in chapter 2, he he masterfully switches to you, but you have no excuse. And, and he's speaking directly to you, the Jewish Christian, and of course now to the Christian you and me today. You have no excuse. And this is true of, of Jew and Gentile. He's 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 done both, right? He's he brought them together. He's separated them. Now he's going to bring them back together again in this full climax, climax of of unrighteousness. This is the shared trait of all humanity, is that we are all unrighteous. And, and the way he described this machine gun fire of, of Bible passages after Bible passages, he, he's going to make his point, all building to this climax, that that all are unrighteous. So that, that's what I was going to jump in with, just a, a, a way of, of summarize. Any, any more introductory bef- before we get into the, the text itself?
1: No, there's a lot of good stuff to get to, so let's uh, let's be on our way.
0: All right, so beginning here in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, Paul writes, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside... that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's the text for today, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Pastor Johnson, Paul Starts off, he's, he's done this in the first part of chapter 3. There's some objections that he's anticipating from these Jewish Christians. He gets to the final one here. Are we Jews any better off? And again, he says, he has no. And the reason, he says, is that because everybody, Jews and Greeks alike, they are under sin. And, and before we get into that string of Bible passages that Paul puts together there for us, that, that term right there, to be under sin, seems like a pretty key thing to understand.
1: I think so, and that's—I think that's exactly what he's going to be describing with all these verses. So we sort of get the short version in two words: under sin, and—and um, and I think the idea here is it's not merely like, um, you know, under the jurisdiction of, um, but I mean, really under the slavery of. I think uh, this is Paul. Kind of you know, he talks about us being slaves to sin in other places. And I think it's very similar without without using that exact same terminology. that's very similar to the idea that it's not like we have a lot of different options here that we're choosing between like,, uh, you know, I'll take the key lime pie, or no, I'll take the apple instead. No, this isn't a this isn't a menu that we're we're choosing from that we're all under sin. In other words, the sentence has already been, you know, has already been handed down. I mean, this is just, this is just who we are in the situation we find ourselves in. Um, I think that does speak to a common misunderstanding in the Old Testament. Um, and I've heard this from kind of, you know, Christians and non-Christians alike that, uh, that the Old Testament somehow teaches that, well, if you, if you, if you just do the sacrifices like god says and if you just live according to his law and you do all the ten commandments and all that other stuff you know that that the old testament really portrays this as a genuine possibility that you could become righteous before god it's just that well everybody just did a bad job of it but it really could happen now barring jesus (laughs) with you know with with his exception it's really not a possibility um And there's so many different places. This is a really good example because Paul cites – it's not like he's quoting the New Testament. It's not even like he quotes Jesus. (laughs) All of these quotes are going to be from the Old Testament. And on top of that, we could keep countless other examples. One of my favorites is uh, the very end of, uh, of the book of Deuteronomy. Um, where Moses represents the entire covenant to all the people. Here they are. They're all – they're basically kind of sitting <laughs> – they're parked outside of, of the promised land with cars still running. They're ready to go in, and he says, hey, everybody, let's review the rules, right? Here they all are. This is what we're going to do. And they all say with one unified vo- voice, they say, oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to do all this stuff. We're going we're gonna to keep the covenant. We're going to obey all the laws, so on and so forth, and Moses says – no, you won't. <laughs> and he goes on, if you remember this, and with painstaking detail, he explains how um, they're going to turn their backs on uh, on the Lord, and this is how he's going to punish them. And it's uncanny how specific he actually is about these prophecies. Anyway, all of this is really to say, um, I, I think this all fits in nicely here with Paul's statement that, um, listen, you guys, you weren't really going to be able to do this to begin with. Um, it was never a real possibility. And um we'll probably come full circle to that, by the way, near the end. Um as we we talk about some different Christian theologies on on how we understand righteousness and, and how it is we actually can't achieve it. So mm.
0: I, I think you're right to tie this under sin to a concept of, of slavery of sin, especially given where Paul's going to go. I'm thinking particularly in Romans chapter six, when he lays out some of his baptismal theology there and the implications oh, sure. of it, he talks about being either slaves to God or being slaves to sin. And that, that same, that same thing is at play here. I'm also just the, the phrase under sin, some of the, the conversations that I've had previously in the book of Romans, dealing with the the Greek word that sometimes translated obedience is mm-hmm. is a great and you you probably know this, Pastor Johnson. It's it's a Greek word hubicuo, which mm-hmm. is often translated obedience, but more literally it means under the hearing of something or under the right. word of something. And I when when you pointed this out, this under sin, I, I wonder if there's a bit of a contrast there with, with Paul, and maybe that's a helpful way for us to think about that obedience word, is you're either under sin, you're you're in slavery to sin, or you're under the hearing, you're a, a slave of of God's word, I think there's a bit of comparing contrast going on there.
1: Oh, absolutely! I think you're you're dead on, and what we're we're really all skirting around the same um, insight that really Luther makes in uh, his bondage of the will, and and that it's really simple: is that you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to Christ. You know, you're either under His authority, you either submit to Him, and so you're right. I, I hadn't thought about it quite this way, but what you made me think of is that the term obedience puts, gives us far too much credit, <laughs> if that makes sense. You know, it, it assumes that we've got all this capacity to do these things. And it's not like obedience is a bad word, but it can be misleading. You know, even when we talk about obedience in, um, you know, as a new creature, for instance, in Galatians chapter five, when we talk about through the spirit, um, we recognize that even though these are things that we obediently do, it's not really by our power. It's not really by our authority. It's not like I got up one morning and said, "Hey, you know what I'd really like to do? I'd like to, uh, I'd like to do, you know, be patient, kind, and all these things because Jesus is really going to love it." No, that's not it. It's because the, the Holy Spirit is going to drag me into it, whether I like it or not. And I'm probably being a little hyperbolic in that way. But I mean, the thing is, we learn to love these things because they're from the Spirit, not because they're from me. So I don't did, did I get too far afield there? I th- I follow what you're saying though.
0: No, yeah, I, I think I think that's a helpful way. And again, I I maybe I'm a little bit too hard sometimes on that English word obedience, but I think like you said it, it does get misused and it's a bit too narrow for what we're talking about here. It's right. it's a matter of being under sin that sin is the master or God is your master and and for for the Lord to be your master is more than obedience as as we're going to see as we've already seen here in the book of Romans. So so with that thought in mind then that everyone Jews and Greeks are under sin. Paul's going to begin to make his final case, his big climax here, and he does so by stringing together a bunch of quotations from the Old Testament, as you pointed out. This is not something new that Paul is making up all of a sudden. This is what the Lord has always taught. And so there's there's several things that we can can talk about with the these psalm quotations, and, and we could get far afield and, and a bit bogged down. But to, to get us started, Pastor Johnson, just lay out a bit of the structure that Paul uses. Where are these quotations coming from? Um, what are some of the, the general features in terms of the way that he quotes the Old Testament before we dig more into the the major points in theology?
1: Right, yeah. So let's get some of the details down. Um, excellent. So you can kind of divide it up nicely into two sections. There is the first three verses, so verses 10, 11, and 12, all are kind of a chunk um, from either Psalm 53 or psalm 14 and the thing is that those two are almost identical in the uh you know well they're almost identical in in whatever language you you actually have it in and so if you if you run through with the comparison it seems like paul is kind of um uh going back and forth quick note of review you're you're here listeners probably have heard this before from some of the pastors but um the Old Testament, of course, is written in Hebrew and Aramaic, and but there's a Greek translation of, uh, of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, and so I'm going to make a couple of references to that because it is important, um, because that's the easiest way to compare, because Paul is writing in Romans, he's writing that in Greek, and it's the easiest to compare word for word how things are showing up in the Old Testament in Greek rather than Hebrew, rather than having to translate it. So the first one is in some ways simpler. Um, So I should say the first chunk. So verse uh, 10, 11, 12, um, the the reading from Psalm 53, let me actually just read it so we kind of get it all into our ears. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God they have all fallen away together they have they have become corrupt there is none who does good not even one and so just listening to it you can hear the obvious similarities and so so Paul may not be quoting this like quite word by word um either from the Greek or translating word for word from the Hebrew, but you could definitely get the sense that, that there's a, uh, you know, that he's getting the gist of it. Um, And in fact, a lot of it is actually word for word, but he's kind of snipped out a couple of phrases. And so, so for example, um, you know, he says, uh, none, well, actually, hold on. Let me, let me pause this thought for a second. The I think one of the challenges we have with this, um, and and maybe, you know, maybe Chris, a lot of Christians aren't really worried about this, but I'm going to go ahead and go there anyway. Is that the question? Kind of becomes when we see a disparity between the way texts get quoted in the New Testament versus the way they're actually written in the Old Testament. And remember, New Testament authors have a little bit different criteria for for quoting things than we than we would today. Um, remember, there are no quote marks in in the Greek language, and so when he says this is what's written, it's not like he's taking, he's taking block quotes that we would be called upon like by an editor. Um, the real question is then, is Paul really being faithful to the psalm when he quotes it? So when he kind of plays, it seems like he's playing fast and loose with it. The short answer is yes, um, and just to, uh, to appease all the, uh, the geeks like me out there, we'll take one quick little detail about it. The, the difference between when Paul quotes in verse 10 through 12 versus what Psalm 53 says, um, is this, um, is the word good versus righteous. And so Paul says none is righteous. Whereas the Psalm says, well, no one is good or there is none who does good. Um, and uh, so the question is, well, is, is Paul kind of filling the gaps a little too much? Because in English, you know, good and, and righteous are very much different words. I think that, um, at least in my estimation, good is, is something we usually associate with behavior. You know, somebody's, somebody's inner character, they're a good guy, or, you know, be good, you tell your kids, right? You know, in other words, behave yourself. But righteous is more of a status word. It's something that's declared, whether it's you know formally or not. And so there is an important distinction between these two. So here's the real question: is that does the original idea behind Psalm 53, does it really point more towards righteousness or good in kind of the modern English sense of like good behavior? Um and shortcutting all the way through this, it's it's really Paul does. I think a very defensible job saying righteous in this case. Yes, it fits his his whole discussion really nicely. But I think it also um fits the the idea behind um what Psalm 53 is talking about. And so he says there's a, there's no one who does good but in the Hebrew even right before that there's a word um that that says they are doing um I'm trying to remember how I translated this earlier. Yeah, they've uh, they've committed iniquity, or the word iniquity could even be translated unrighteousness. Mm. And so clearly, in the context there, the Hebrew is already dealing with concepts that don't really fit into our idea of good as in good behavior, but more in the sense of righteousness as in a state of being. In other words, are, you know, are you in the right or are you in the wrong? Does that make sense?
0: It does. It does. And I mean, I think this is, like you said, this is one of those questions that perhaps most faithful Christians are not necessarily going to think about all that hard, but it's a, it's going to be a, the reason we need to talk about it, at least in brief, is that it it will be a challenge that's brought up by the skeptic. Look, Paul didn't know what he was talking about. He can't even quote the old Testament correctly. And so to, to have an answer for that is, is important that Paul is, making faithful use of the scriptures and is conveying their meaning correctly and and preaching it correctly too. I you know for one thing I think it's it's worth pointing out Paul doesn't live in a time where he can look this passage up on biblegateway.com and copy and <laughs> right. paste it into the email that he's sending to the Romans. He's he's not doing that. He's he's he knows these scriptures. And, and I, I also think we shouldn't underestimate the fact that Jesus appeared to Paul on the way to Damascus, the risen Christ, the same one that opened the apostles' minds after Easter, to understand that the Old Testament is all about him. And now Paul sits down to preach that Old Testament to this Roman church. I mean, I, I don't think, I don't, with, with all of that in mind, and is that going to convince a skeptic? Maybe not. But but with all of that in mind, uh, there's absolutely no reason for the Christian to look at this and question what Paul's doing as if he's somehow being unfaithful to the text.
1: Right. Because it is—you're um, y- exactly right that I—you know, you're never going to prove all of this. I mean, because it, even, even if you can prove that Paul is using the— um, you know this text faithfully uh, and consistently with the Old Testament. Ultimately, what he's preaching can only really be accepted by faith—not—not not faith in the sense of like you know just just blind assent, but in the sense that you know how how can you prove that the whole world is actually held accountable to God? There's no there's no logical structure that can say that. That's something that we that we acknowledge. Um, but, uh, but in even more to the point, then how, you know, how do we actually know that uh, that Jesus Christ has actually been sent in order to declare us righteous from the very thing which you know the very thing which we can't do for ourselves? That too is an, ultimately a matter of uh, of faith. But nonetheless, like you said, and I completely agree with you, um, you know, it's it's important to have answers to objections as well, be, uh, so that you know, so that we can at least say uh, among our own, you know, in our own circles, like, listen, we, we need to be intellectually honest and not lazy about this Mm -hmm. too.
0: Right. Right. There's no, there's no use in saying, well, sure. It's, it's exactly what is written there in in Psalm 53. No, he, Paul is doing something with this. He's, I mean, and I, think, I think that's at least one way I look at it. He's, he's preaching this. He's proclaiming it. And just as, as you or I in a sermon might make make reference to a passage without necessarily quoting it verbatim, we're recalling that Word of God. How much more can Paul do that when he's an inspired writer of the Holy Scriptures? I mean, right. Again, you know, these, uh, we have solid ground to stand on as Christians. So having said all of that, Pastor Johnson, in this first section of Psalm quotes, verses 10 through 12, which are primarily being drawn from Psalm 14, Psalm 53. That's, Mm -hmm. that's some of the technicalities. What's Paul doing with that quote right here?
1: Well, Paul, I'd like to, to run through 13 through 18 and then take those two as a pair. Sure. Okay. Um, We've got about
0: three minutes left here before the break.
1: Okay. Well, let's, let's say this. He's verses 10 through 12. He's affirming what he's already said. No one is righteous. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll just tell you then we've got a smattering now of five biblical quotes, and we won't talk about the technicalities of of all of them, only that um, if you really dig into them, you're going to find exactly the same thing. Paul is being – he's not just playing fast and loose with the texts. If you actually go through, do the hard work, look at the context of it, you actually come to the same conclusions about all of these other ones, that he's being – they're all – He's using them for their intended purposes, even when he's, you know, taking a phrase from here and taking a phrase from there. And so for, for example, verse 13 is from Psalm uh, 5. And then the second half of verse thirteen is from Psalm one forty. Um, verse fourteen is from Psalm ten. Uh, verse fifteen through seventeen is actually all from Isaiah. He departs a little bit and goes to a uh, to Isaiah. And then finally, uh, verse eighteen is from from Psalm thirty six. And uh, when we get to the other side of the break, uh, we can actually make some observations about the uh, about these texts.
0: Mm. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide K. If you're looking at Romans 3, verses 9 through 20, no one is righteous, not even one. Paul has strung together a string of quotations from the Psalms, one from Isaiah, to prove this point. On the other side of the break, we're going to pick that up and see some of the themes that Paul puts together through these Old Testament readings. We're going to be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that for over 40 years, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries with low-cost loans and resources? This is Rahema Kavuga, Synod Relations Manager of Lutheran Church Extension Fund. Because of faithful investors like you, we've been able to help church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations to learn how you can get involved. Call 800-843-8233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Monday, April 27th. We're looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, with Pastor Jeremiah Johnson of Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, prior to the break, we, we began to look at the string of psalm quotations and one from Isaiah that Paul brings out. And we were looking at that second chunk in verses 13 through 18. I'm going to go ahead and, and reread that chunk for us and then let you talk a little bit about the, the theology that there that's there. What is Paul doing with these quotes? So again, Romans 3, verses 13 through 18. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Right, so that's that second section, Pastor Johnson. Take us into the theology there.
1: Right. Tim, you hinted earlier about a change in pronouns, um with the, uh, the the them to you, and Paul kind of does the same thing in here. Um, this is one change that we notice from the psalm, the original text of the psalm, and where Paul's quoting it here. Um, for example, in, uh, let's see, it's in verse 14, the original psalm says, you know, his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit, but now Paul says their mouth, is uh is full of it and then um and then likewise then in the very last verse there in verse eight uh um 18 there is no fear of god before it was originally his eyes but now it's their eyes now in the original texts they were you know they were he or him as a generalized person as as the wicked one you know somebody who's not they weren't thinking of like a you know larry or something like that these were generalized people And so what Paul is really doing is he's capturing that, but I think it's really feeding into his whole line of argumentation. Remember, nobody's excluded. There's nobody who can say, like, hey, uh, I I didn't do this. You know, I'm not responsible for this. I'm not unrighteous like all these other people. Like, no, they, 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 that's all of you guys, right? There's nobody excluded from this. So I think Paul is really using this generalizing tendency to show that all of us, Jew and Gentile, are alike under sin. Another thing to notice, it really jumped out at me when I was reading this myself earlier, uh, that Paul's descriptions, uh, especially with these, the second chunk of Psalm quotes, includes um, actions and minds and words. And there was, you know, kind of this very holistic thing. So he says, He says, uh, Our actions, their feet are swift to shed blood, he says, you know, and it includes our minds. No one understands. You know, no one seeks God. And then our words, their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. And I think it's, by the way, worth noting that he spends quite a bit of time on mouths. You notice that? Verse Mm -hmm. 14, uh, you know, verse 13, there's like uh, three phrases. And then in verse 14, there's another phrase as well. Um, Maybe we should all pause for a second and consider how much damage I think sometimes our tongues can do that we don't realize. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is also paul i think is doing a classic kind of hebrew move here you might say um that i think gets illustrated nicely in passages like deuteronomy chapter 6 right after you know hero israel the lord our god the lord alone it goes on to say you probably remember this you shall love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might and so paul's or uh, you know the, uh, moses isn't when he says that he it's not like Um, there's a checklist. Like, okay, well, I got to make sure that I love God with all my brain here. Okay, I got that under control. No, heart, soul, and mind is just another way of saying all of you. It's all encompassing. And so I think likewise here, just like uh, Moses tells the people to love the Lord their God with their whole being, likewise, what Paul here is doing is using that, but in the opposite way around, saying, no, it's not just part of you it's not just your tongue that's bad it's not just your mind that's bad it's not just your your heart or your actions or whatever it is it's all of you that is bad it kind of reminds you of when Jesus himself says um you know he's talking to the religious leaders and says it's not what comes out of your mouth or uh, that goes into your mouth that makes a man impure but what comes out of him implying that it's <laughs> you know the impurity is from within and it 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 um, corrupts everything, and I think that's such an important point for us to recognize that if we're really going to take all of of Romans three seriously, that we can't pretend like sin just winged us. <laughs> you know, it's it, you know it it hit dead center. It's total. It's thorough, and it's a completely corrupting to us. There's nothing good left in us. Mm. Um, and then one more observation about these, uh, uh, these texts, um, so this fundamental unrighteousness is also part of our relationship with God. If you, if you notice in these, these two chunks of uh, Psalm passages, it gets mentioned twice. Um, Paul says, no one seeks God. And then in verse 18, he says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. So in other words, my point is, it's not just a matter of behavior. It's not like we you know, we just, well, we just can't do anything right. Ultimately, this is a first commandment issue. There is no one who is righteous because in the end, like I said, with the exception of Jesus, there is no one who truly fears God. In other words, all those descriptions of the wicked one and the fool from Psalms and and the other uh, you know proverbial writings, that's us. That's really us because we are the ones who have turned our hearts against God. And it kind of goes full circle then back to our conversation earlier about uh, we, we talked a little bit about obedience and of course then the the bound nature of uh you know you know of our entity our, our identity. Uh, that it's not just that we um, is that we did bad things, but we are we are prisoners. We are prisoners to beings to uh, to sin, and we are prisoners to our own depravity. Mm-hmm. And frankly, that's not <laughs> that's not a real popular uh, message nowadays, but I mean that's that's what the Bible tells us. And the Bible doesn't tell us what um, it, what necessarily is always going to make us feel good. It tells us what's true. And, uh, you know, that's rightly what Paul is, uh, what he's concerned with.
0: Right, right. I, I love the way you, you connect it to the first commandment. And, and I think above all else, to see to see that way that Paul does structure it there at the beginning, to recognize, the, it, it comes back to a matter of idolatry. And mm-hmm. and even with the, as you were reading earlier, Psalm 14, or I don't remember if you read 15, or, or sorry, 14 or 53, but similar way of starting. Both of them start, the fool says in his heart, there is no God which right. Paul doesn't quote here but but is still in the background of what he's bringing out that that it does come down to this this fear love and trust in God above all things as Luther teaches us in the in the catechism and and if we could do that or if we did do that we'd have no problem with the deeds but this is really a matter of the heart and and this is something that that we would never know on our own that that our sin goes this deep. I mean, even even when we talk about—and I don't know if you've ever used this, Pastor Johnson, but I've, I've talked about, you know, you start to believe in original sin when you have kids and, and you oh, see— Oh, yeah. But, but even then, I, I don't—you still have to know from God's Word this, because even I mean, when you're looking at that that newborn baby— you're not thinking that this is a this is a sinner. Maybe maybe when they start crying in the middle of the night, maybe maybe you start thinking that. Or when when they get to start crawling and and they they look at you and you say no and they still do it, maybe then. But but that first moment, I don't know if you're thinking, now ah, this baby's a sinner. This is Paul lays it out that that this is the depth of our depravity. And even for for you and and for me, like I mean, as as my, I, I confess this each week but but i still like to think of myself as a pretty good person and and paul we all do paul just takes it away
1: right yeah that that he does i mean he really in many ways paul is laying the foundation for the uh the biblical theology for confession Hmm. now before i go there i actually had one more thing to add to the uh to the kids because yes i would agree with that having children um you know definitely uh definitely convinces you of um Of original sin but i think it's not just the children but it's my role as a parent because i had no idea how selfish i was until i had all these little all these little creatures demanding my uh demanding my uh attention and responsibility and all these other things i thought i thought it was a pretty great guy until i became a parent and i realized wow i can snap in a second it's amazing
0: yeah, you're exactly and right so, uh, on that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, so so there's uh, you know, our sin is testified not only by our children but also by their parents. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but you know, like I was saying, this really does lay all the groundwork for our confession uh, because I, what Paul is saying is that sin is both universal. In other words, you know, nobody gets out of this one. It's Jew and Gentile, and it's inevitable. Not I mean, inevitable in the sense that, you know, if we um. Like this is who this is who we are at least apart from Christ. This is who we are. This is this is our identity. Um, we're we we can not be any other way. We will be sinners because we are slaves to sin, or as Paul says it earlier, we are under sin. And so, you know, it this all kind of reminds me though of the uh, the ministry of John the Baptist. You know, he basically says, Hey, God's coming, so repent. Don't think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. And so if I could if I could kind of read between the lines a little bit there you can almost hear Paul's words as John addresses the crowds you know like if you put it Paul's words into John's mouth So oh wait what you think you got this all in the bag no no one is righteous not even one so repent you know be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins you know, or even as Jesus himself later says, uh, you know, unless you repent, you too will all perish. And so, you know, so it's not like Paul, and this is this is one of the things that frustrates me to no end, um, is that the skeptics who want to uh, who want to make Paul like completely separate him from the preaching of Jesus. I mean, I just feel like they've got no creativity uh, because it seems to me that if you can get past, yeah, maybe the terminology, Jesus doesn't use the same kind of terminology Paul does, but it's the same message. And I know that doesn't shock you, but it really is, and and it fundamentally comes down to this, is that there's no one righteous, not even one. You can't do it. You can't do it. That's why I'm here. That's what Jesus says. And so so I think this also, if we can understand this we start to see how truly remarkable confession and absolution is. I mean, this is one of the things in the church, there's a lot of things that I never cease to be amazed by in the church, but this is definitely one of them. Because when we confess, you know, in our in our liturgical uh, tradition, we say we're by nature sinful and unclean. Um, we're All we're really doing is agreeing with Paul and the Bible and Jesus, for that matter, and, um, and we're basically stepping forward and saying, "Listen, Jesus, I I can't do it. Um, I tried, but I can't do what you've asked, Lord. Right? I can't be right. Um, and um, and if I'm honest, um, I'm not going to be right before the world either. So I quit. I mean, it, now don't, don't get me wrong. There's a place for good works. That's a, that's a conversation for another day because that's not what Paul's talking about. But I mean, w- w- what we're essentially saying in confession is Lord, I give up because I can't do it. Um, you know, the only thing that's, the only thing that's left for us is if, is if somebody, somebody would step in and actually do it for us. If somebody could actually make this right on our behalf, if somebody could, uh, could actually just tell us that we're right rather than us trying to be right. Mm. All right. am, am I laying down the hints thickly enough here?
0: I think so. I think so. And that's. I mean, that's where Paul's going to go. And right. and this and all of this is is pointing to. Also, I mean, you, your phraseology there that that you're just we're just going to say in confession, I quit. I think is is right in the sense of and this is where Paul goes in verses nineteen and twenty as well, is that all of all of this that that everyone is under this unrighteousness. What is left for us? And Paul uses to say there's nothing I, my mouth has to to close and to be quiet and and I have to quit I have to quit trying to justify myself which is what Paul has spent you know chapter the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2 really addressing is is these various attempts to justify ourselves whether whether that's well I'm I I'm at least better than that guy, and so I'm gonna judge right. myself based on him, or or whether it's oh, I'm a Gentile and I didn't I didn't know that law. No, that, that doesn't work, or I'm I'm a Jew, I've got Abraham as my father. No, that doesn't work either. All all of this has been building here, and now Paul that's the only option he's going to leave open to us is to to quit, to simply shut up, to be quiet, and as you said, let someone else talk, let someone else justify. And that's where Paul's right. headed.
1: Right. And you, you raise, I think, the two probably most critical things um, in this whole passage. You know, you talked about our own self-justification and, you know, that every mouth may be stopped. So if you'll uh, p- permit me, I'll I'll uh, kind of take those in, in order. Um, I think one of the challenges that we have with this this very churchy word, justification, is that we often don't think about it in terms of, uh, you know— of our everyday life it becomes a, a word that's just relegated to sunday morning but it's not in fact it, it's everywhere but we don't usually talk this way but by the way quick note righteousness and justification are from the same root in uh, in the new testament the problem is we have they're from two different roots in english but they're from the same root in um in greek so when you read this um justify just means to make righteous so that's what we all need to remember so really one you know two sides of the same coin but, I mean, we are um, – Oswald Bayer. if you're familiar with him, he made an observation, and I'm paraphrasing it, though, is that our you know acceptance – acceptance is the most common form of justification that we seek as human beings. Acceptance is the most common form of justification. Um, and if you think about this for a little bit, you realize – this is, this is what we do all the time. And we're always seeking, you know, acceptance. Certainly the, there's the real, the, the, the crass are obvious examples of like, uh, you know, like middle schools. I've got a middle schooler. Hopefully I'm not embarrassing her right now, but she won't listen to this program anyway. <laughs> um, you know, but she's always looking for acceptance from her, you know, from her peer group. I mean, that's what all middle schoolers do. They want to fit in. They don't want to stick out. They want to have friends. They want people to accept them. But, you know, we never really grow out of that. And in a way, you know, that really is a form of justification. But that's not the only kind, though, either. I mean, uh, I think one of the the ways, the most common ways we actually do this, especially in our our era of social media, is we, you know, we we go online, we post our photos and and little stories about our newest vacation and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, and people naturally get into this kind of comparison game where you feel like, oh, I need to be, you know, I need to be, you know, kind of you know winning at life just as much as the guy down the street is and we all end up then trying to justify ourselves by whatever our um you know our Instagram feed ends up looking like you know or um you know just just imagine maybe to even more extreme just imagine you're sitting down for a conversation with uh with like some guy who's like got it ultimately together. You know, he he's got great kids and he just finished triathlon and, you know, and uh, you know, he has a he has a good relationship with his wife and he's got some stellar career and he makes like a million dollars a year. And when you sit down with people like that, at least I don't know about you, but when I sit down with people like that, you know, I feel like there's always this intrinsic um you know urge to to try to either say, well, he must he must not really be as happy or successful as as he really seems to be, or to try to find some way that I can be that successful. well, i I did a pretty good job, too. I ran a five k the other week. and and well, I've got a good I've got good kids too. And, and so we always engage this constant effort of justification. and um if you the, now these are the ways of course we do this with other people. um but I think what it does, is it really illustrates how this is such a primal? Uh, I can't think of a better word than you know, primal urge or primal impulse on our behalves, which, um, when it comes to, when it comes to God. Think about how much more important it is then that if we think it's so important to be justified in front of our neighbor, how much more important is it than to be justified before the the creator and and the king of the entire universe? But I mean, this is exactly what Paul is tearing down. I mean, he's not really worried about Instagram. He's worried about your, you know, e- eternal life. And and eventually he says, you know, every every mouth may be stopped because, well, this is this is always the verse that stops me dead in my tracks because we just don't act like this. Kind of in concert with that, um, with all of that self-justifying we do before other people, I think what we really want is we want the whole world to be held accountable to us. You know, in our own attempts to kind of silence the the words and accusations of other people, um, what we really are seeing is an echo of how every mouth is stopped and every person is held accountable to god because we want other people to be accountable to us right we want their mouth stopped you know um you know the guy who who uh who whips by you going 30 miles an hour over the speed limit you you think to yourself even if you don't say it you think boy I hope that guy gets pulled over right mm-hmm. you you want him to answer for his sin mm-hmm. and uh and likewise um you know uh, uh we were talking about parenthood right somebody told me once a while back said you know do what's right as a parent if you're lucky they might thank you by age thirty, right? <laughs> but, but what does that really play upon? That plays upon the fact that we want to be, we we want to have um, our kids be able to tell us in the end, like, "Hey, you really did the right thing." We want their mouths to confess our righteousness, right? Yeah. But this is this is um. Uh, this is what God is actually doing for us. I mean, we seek to be a law unto ourselves in this way because we want we want the world to be answerable to us. But this is, I think, this is the part I think that always makes my stomach drop out from underneath me. God alone is judge. And if that's true, then none of the rest of it matters. I mean, our condemnation of the law is shared and it's total. So there's no amount of volunteering or sacrifices or pancake dinners or any of that other stuff that's going to change any of this. Mm. You know, we can make all of our objections and we can file our complaints but the complaint department of heaven is closed. And so <laughs> so even if we could manage, even if we could just imagine this. You know, it's your funeral, right? Everybody wants you to say nice things at your funeral. Imagine if you could get the entire world to do a eulogy. I don't know how they do it. Maybe it's one giant Zoom call. Who knows? Um, but if they could all do a eulogy at your funeral, in the end, in the final calculations, it wouldn't matter if everybody still loved you on Earth, because the only thing that matters in the end is what God says. And this is what you were hinting at before. So that every mouth may be stopped. I mean, this is. I mean, thankfully, if if Romans stopped at verse twenty this would be the greatest travesty ever. I mean I would go home crying in my beer or just crying period um but I mean there's more to it than that there there's there's some there's some other way and that's what we're gonna find out going ahead. I don't want to steal the thunder from the person ahead but uh, but this is this is the great this is the light at the end of the tunnel this is the little hope that's being held out for us that um yeah you're your mouth is stopped, but there's somebody else who can speak for you.
0: Right, right. I as you were as you were talking, and there's so much so much that we could say in this matter of self justification. When you start to when you start to see this, you you just see it everywhere. That oh, yeah. so much of what we do and say as sinners is built around trying to justify ourselves. I think the one thing I'll I'll say is that Typically, because I think this this helps maybe bridge and, and we've got about five minutes left here, Pastor Johnson. so I don't oh, want to take well, don't too worry, much time. I got lots more stuff. Yeah, so but the, the thing when when we're accused by the law, our, our sinful tendency, the first word for us to utter is is but. <laughs> right. but it doesn't apply to me for for whatever reason. if we'll be quiet and let God do the talking and let him utter the word but first as we'll get to tomorrow, there's a lot of grace on the other side of that of that word, but when God speaks it, and we let Him justify ourselves, justify us, rather than trying to justify ourselves. Okay, so so Pastor Johnson, we got un, we got four and a half minutes left now. And and I know there's a little bit more you wanna you wanna touch on with this matter of the law and not being justified by that. Just help us wrap things up, bring it home with like four minutes.
1: <laughs> well, we may we'll have to see how this goes because I I actually I wasn't keeping track of time very well and I kind of already did the wrap up part, but we can oh. uh, we can talk a little wow. bit more about. Okay. No, trust me, I've got lots more notes. You've seen them, <laughs> so no. But I wanted to, something you said uh, triggered in my mind the psalm. Be still and know mm-hmm. that I am God. Mm-hmm. Um, that, in many ways, this is like the, the perfectly appropriate response to um, uh, you know uh, to Romans chapter three in, in, and to confession for that matter. For uh, you know for the for the, the word of God that that accuses us. Instead of but, it should just be this hear that silence <laughs> it should just be silence before me. i think it's one of the the great reasons why um uh, silence in the divine service and you know by the way i'm not necessarily the best practitioner of this and so full disclosure <laughs> but uh to allow a little bit more of that time you know after we've uh right before we confess our sins to just allow the silence to linger because knowing that um yeah, we, the 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 gig is up where uh, we we may come before God, you know, with this whole uh, truckload full of sins, but in the end, our appropriate response to those sins is nothing but silence. I mean, how can you gainsay God? How can we how can we say anything contrary uh, to what He has already said? All we have to say is, yep, Lord, you're exactly right. Mm. Yes, Lord. You're right. I mean, and that's in a way that's that's what confession is. It's to say the same thing as the
0: Lord, right? So, yeah, no, that and that and that's wonderful. the The matter of I, I will say, silence like that on the radio causes the host's heart to skip a beat. But so. <laughs> but silence in the in the divine service. No, you're you're exactly right. That 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 to recognize we are here to let let God talk to us and to say back to Him the same things that He has said, and in those things that He has said to to. To receive his life, his forgiveness, his salvation. It's 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 a wonderful thing. And, and and Pastor Johnson has been a great, a great conversation. Pastor Jeremiah Johnson is the pastor at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota, helping us this morning with Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Pastor Johnson, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Paul lays it out very clearly here no one is righteous, not one. One Jew and Gentile alike are all under sin. There is no excuse at all. Paul is very clear as he quotes here from Psalm after Psalm after Psalm that this is nothing new. And by the end of it there can only be silence on our part. We are guilty. We have sinned. God has another word for us. When we are silent, he speaks his forgiving word, his Word of absolution. And that's what's coming in tomorrow's text. In Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 21, Paul makes that turn to give us the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's yours today. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.